he did a great job. I am Michael Overstreet. I am the growth group director here. And I have good news. Um, Eric, Eric hinted at this, but I'm not going to talk for one second today about German soccer. Yeah, thank you. Hallelujah. But I am going to talk about punk rock. Because I... <laughs> see, that's great. I believe that the best way to get to know a person, someone new, a new face, is to get to their story. To see where they've come from. And if you want to know where Mike Overstreet came from, you should check out these screens because there's a photo I have to show you. I am not wearing the suit. This is my eighth grade graduation. Uh, my parents loved me very much. They were so proud. That is a dollar sign necklace also. And man, I was going through this week. And in case you don't believe this photo, I've got some evidence for you. Oh, what's this? Oh, Oh, I still got it. Still fits. <laughs> I put in every one of these studs by hand, by the way. It took a lot of time. Um, and then when it got cold, I had this one, a little bit more leopard print, if that's what y'all are into. And if I wanted to get real fashionable, my painted leather jacket, Punk's Not Dead, that is still true today, believe it. And I brought this because, I mean, I was thinking about times in my life where my belief in something was, like, at an all-time high. Like, when I was sold out on something in my life that was just the most important thing. And it's funny because I look back, and I was buying all these CDs, and I was going to all these shows. I clearly had the swag. <laughs> but I laugh because I wasn't that punk rock when I really think about it. You know, something about it struck a nerve... I love singing about rebellion. I love singing about the protest. I love the way they engaged in justice. Like they were angry about the things wrong in the world. And that spoke to me. But I sang about blowing up the system. And then I lived in the suburbs in a very nice home that my parents paid for. I sang a lot about things like anti-materialism. But I had every new Xbox when it came out. And I usually played more time on video games than I did practicing guitar so I could travel the country putting the message out there, right? And the reason I laugh is that, you know, over time, as I went along, I kind of started to grow out of it. I took the jacket off, the vest. I can't even get it off now because I've kind of gained some weight. But I took the vest off and I put it in my closet and it started just becoming something I wore every now and again. And I went to college and... It didn't come out at all until a Halloween party a few years ago or a sermon so I can make a prep about, you know, a joke about it. And the reason I bring this up is that this text today, I think, gets at what happened. Because I think when we say that I grew out of it, I actually think that's condescending. Because there are people in that scene still today who do things in the world that I find admirable, who I look up to, who cry out. They beat the drum of injustice. And they don't let people turn away from that. They're anti-materialists. They actually live that out. Now, I think what happened was that when it came time for me to live the life and to do the things that were giving meaning to those words, the life behind the music, it just wasn't there. It just wasn't about it, really. And so it became a garb, and then it became a fad, and I took it off, and I put it away which is not a shameful thing. I don't feel like I'm a bad person. It just wasn't what I was doing. 
And this is at the core of this section of Scripture today. Because like we've been talking about, John's talking about this church that's split. And he's been focusing on the dissenters so far, the people who left. But this is the section of Scripture where he makes a shift. And he starts talking to the church, the people who stayed. And he's going to give them a very hard challenge that has convicted me all week. And the challenge is simply this. What happens when that balance between what we say we believe and how we live starts to get out of whack? Or namely, when we start getting this balance wrong, the conflict that he's talking about is inevitable. And we're going to dive into this scripture, and I'm going to hopefully follow along. Um, it's a little dense, so bear with me. I promise I'm going somewhere with this. And he starts out with verse 10, and he says, This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. And right off the bat, John is making this very hard distinction, right? He creates these two categories, or I think you'll come to see these two ways of being in the world that are as far apart as they can be. He draws this hard line in the sand, right? And that's because he's trying to get at why this is so important. And what you'll see is after he's set these categories, he's going to start talking about how we can distinguish them. And the first one's pretty comfortable for me. Children of God, I'm about that. And if you're new to the church, what this is, is this is a term used in the New Testament. We talked about it a bit last week. And it basically is just about being in God's family. It's the people who have been brought into God's family through Christ. And it's about basically what it means to be a part of that family. It's a term that implies a few things, if you know the context of the New Testament. It implies relationship. You know, a kid and their parent have a relationship, right? Trusting, protecting, loving. So, the children of God and the Father have a relationship. It's about shared attributes, characteristics. In that time, it was very much a, the father is like the son, the mother is like the daughter. The children were expected to reflect the character of their parents. So the children of God are those who reflect the attributes of God. And then the third thing is the thing that John's hammering home, as you'll see as we walk through this. And that is they shared in the work of their parent. In that time period, you did what your father did. You did what your mother did. That was it. And if you guys are new to the Bible, the, I'll summarize the work of God pretty quickly. It is simply four things. God is in the business of saving, healing, reconciling, and redeeming creation. From the beginning of the Bible to the end, it's God is about making right what went wrong. Pretty simple, right? So John's focusing on this group in this passage and saying, you want to know who the children of God are? They're the people who are participating in the work of healing, saving, redeeming, and reconciling our creation. And I'm, that's pretty simple so far. But then John throws out this other category that gives me the heebie-jeebies. I'm just going to be honest. That's the children of the devil. And if you're like me in the 21st century, anytime I see a scripture like that, I get really uncomfortable. I'm just going to be honest. And I think that's because we've done this thing as a culture where we've made this term devil into something that is so cartoonish, so outlandish, that it's almost too much for us to identify with. It's this thing with horns and a pitchfork that runs around and causes all the trouble in the world. And we go, well, that has nothing to do with me because I'm, I'm not the devil. I don't have horns. I don't have the pitchfork. 
Or worse, it becomes something that becomes a stick that we use to beat things we don't like, right? Everyone seen the water boy? Football is the devil, you know? This is the devil. That's the devil. And it's because it's so detached from us that it becomes these things that we can't relate to. And the term I'd like to throw out there is actually one that we've talked about here at E3 before. It's a biblical term called the adversary. And what it's more about is it is the force that is fundamentally opposed to what God is doing in the world. So when you hear about adversary, it's that thing that by its very nature is not in line with that work, that healing, that saving, that redeeming, that reconciling work in the world. And I think that gives us more clarity because what you're going to see, what John gets at, is that this is directed to the church. This is not a verse that is like, the devil is out there and we're all in here and we're good and they're bad and let's go get them. This is a way of being in the world that he's talking about, that he's challenging the church to look at in themselves. And what he's saying is we get this wrong, we might be on the outside looking in of what God is doing in the world. Okay? So, logically, the next step after creating these categories is he sets about distinguishing them. How can you tell, John, which one I'm in? And he's going to obviously talk about electric guitars or if you have an organ. He's going to talk about what is your doctrine of baptism. He's going to talk about any number of checklists. But he doesn't. In fact, he chooses two things that, once again, make me kind of squirm a little bit. Doing right and loving one another. And what John is saying is, if you want to know how to distinguish between these two ways of being in the world, look at actions and look at the quality of the love that they produce. And that makes everyone get a little bit quiet. (laughs) Because it's convicting, right? He's saying, if you want to know, what are the actions and the love that flows out of each of them? And they'll give you a hint on whether they are taking part in the participation of the healing and the reconciling, or if they are in opposition to the healing and the reconciling. And John then goes on from here into verse 12. And this is where things start to get really interesting. Because he's going to get really deep and I'm going to unpack this. But he does some fun things that will... It blew my mind. He starts out, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. There's a lot to go through, but the first thing I want to walk through is this person, Cain. Now, Cain, for those who are not accustomed to church stories, is someone that we find early in the Old Testament. We have the creation story in the book of Genesis, where God creates the universe. Two chapters later, in chapter 3, we have the fall, where sin comes into the world. And right there in chapter 4 after that, we have Cain and Abel. This is the story of the first murder in the Bible. They're two brothers. They come to God with their sacrifices. Abel's is like super good. It's his best thing. He says, here's my, the best that I have to offer. 
And Cain kind of brings together some fruit from the garden and not a whole lot else, right? And God says, way to go, Abel. Cain, you can do better. Instead of changing his attitude or changing his actions, Cain becomes jealous of Abel. And that jealousy becomes anger. That anger becomes hate. And then he murders him. And this is an interesting story. Because if you notice right there in that first verse, he has this phrase that Cain belonged to the evil one. But if you read Genesis 4, it doesn't mention the evil one at all. That is not something that is in the text. And we as church people can get really uncomfortable because you're like, John, you can't make things up and add it to the Bible, right? I said that out loud when I was preparing for this because I usually say out loud the things that I'm passionate about. <laughs> but... um. Yeah, this isn't in the original text. And what I'm going to unpack that. But what I want to at least plant in your mind and ask this question is, what if this has nothing to do with the presence of the evil one? What if what John's doing here is asking the question of when we look at Cain, the story of Cain, and we look at his attitude, and we look at his heart, and we look at the actions that flowed out of them, that it is obvious which side of this participation and opposition that he is on. More so, what if what John's doing is he's pointing to Cain and he's saying, if you want to know what this looks like, if you want to know what opposition to God looks like, look at the hate in the heart and the actions that flowed through it because Cain is a perfect representative of what getting this wrong can look like. You following me? And I think he's doing this to build on verse 10 and 11. Because what he's really hammering into is once again, look at Cain's actions and the obvious lack of love. Those two things he said distinguish the the two categories. And Cain is a perfect example of that second one. Which makes sense because like we said, the Cain story comes right after the creation story. God creates and literally three chapters later, Cain destroys. Opposition, right? Right? But then John does something that can make us all squirm a little bit. And that is he absolutely prevents us from wiggling out of identifying with Cain. If you notice in that last verse, he says, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. The thing that Cain did. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Participation in what God's doing in the world. You see, this is a reference to a teaching by Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount which is a a passage from the Gospel of Matthew that is how Jesus talks about what does it look like for Christians to live in the kingdom of God? What does the Christian life look like? And repeatedly, he goes into these things, the Ten Commandments, which were God's law early in uh, the story, and he basically prevents us from thinking that the kingdom of God is fundamentally about getting a checklist of rules right and not worrying about the heart that is behind the person. So for example, he'll say, you have heard it said that thou shalt not murder. And we all go, yes, I didn't do that today, right? (laughs) And then Jesus throws out the infamous, but, but I tell you that if you hate your brother, you have already murdered them in your heart. And we all go, oh, Jesus. And we don't really always know what to do with that because that can make us feel pretty bad. But it's the challenge that he puts is he says the kingdom of God is not just about getting the rules right. It is about transforming the heart of the person 
from which those actions naturally flow. And what he's trying to get at, him and John, is this this infinitely old human question. That is, where do our actions come from? And what they're getting at is that the state of our heart is where our actions flow from. Cain did not go, oopsie-daisy, and trip and murder Abel, right? It says in the text that he fostered this heart of jealousy, then anger, hate, towards his brother. That when he came time to engage with him, when the opportunity was right, the only thing that could happen from the state of his heart was that violence. Because that's the heart he had fostered. And more so... I think one of the things that it gets at is that Cain had got into this place that he could fundamentally look at other human beings, image bearers of God, and see himself as separate from them, better than them. He could look at them and say, that person's unworthy. That person doesn't deserve my respect. And that got to the point in which he was able to look at a human being and say, that life is not worthy of what God created it to be. That is awesome. No, I love it. I want, I want to color sometimes, too. That's how depressing this makes me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, and the challenge here, the one obvious, the one at the end of this verse, is that when we share in that heart of separation, when we share in that heart of jealousy, of anger, of hate toward fellow human beings, we actually share in the heart of Cain. And we might find ourselves outside looking in, on that healing, and that reconciling, that saving, and that redeeming. And we don't want to do that as the church, right? We call ourselves the body of Christ. We're supposed to be his body in the world. So that is a dire warning to us, a reminder of what happens when we get this wrong, this love one another command. And he won't let us delude ourselves into thinking that we can get the God part right. Me and God are good because I checked off the boxes and not worry about the heart that we have towards the people he created. He won't let us fall into that trap. He says the heart is where the actions into the world flow. So we're all feeling pretty bad now? All right, have a good day. I'm just kidding. (laughs) And this is the part of the verse where we're like, oh, man, what do we do with this? Like, I can't live up to this. I can't measure up. You know, why can't I just hate that guy on Facebook who disagrees with me all the time? Or why can't I hate the coworker who wastes my time with meaningless conversations when I'm trying to work? Or why, like, why can't I deal with the kid in class who on syllabus, syllabus day asks like a hundred questions? And you're like, we just want to go home, bro. <laughs> like, why can't we? But there's hope. Because just as he created two different categories and he filled one, he's going to fill the other one. In Bible 101, who do you think he's going to point to as the perfect example of what it means to live out this participation in the healing, the saving, the reconciling, the redeeming? Jesus! Oh, you guys are so good. Eric's done good here. I can tell. I can tell. He points to Jesus. And he basically says, like starting in verse 16, he says, you want to know what it looks like to get this right? You want to know what it looks like to be in on that healing, that saving, that reconciling, that redeeming that God wants to do in the world? He says, look at Christ. 
He's gonna, he makes three major points here that I think enlighten us on what this means for us as people. The first is he points to Christ's incarnation. He basically says, you want to know what this looks like? Like I said, look at Christ. Christ has already lived the kind of love and the kind of life that makes this world healed, reconciled, redeemed, and saved. He's already done it. He's done it perfectly. We're not groping in the dark saying, what does this look like? We have an example. So that's the first thing. It says, look at Christ, look at his sacrifice, that self-sacrificial love. And that's what it looks like. The second point, and each of these start getting a little more convicting, is he calls us and he says, the only way that we respond to believing that, when we believe that Christ is who he says he is, that Christ did what he said he did, our only appropriate response is to model it ourselves. He basically says, if you really believe, if you're really on board with this Messiah, you need to live it out. You need to share in that heart that when we see Christ for who he is, our hearts in response should be transformed to be like his. And that's a pretty heavy gauntlet to throw down. And the third one is uh, the one that gets me the most. Christ-like love is a verb. John has this verb, tithemi, which is a Greek verb for laid down. And every time John uses this verb, which he does not do often in his gospel or his letters, it means real, direct action in the world. He says, John laid down, or sorry, Christ laid down his life like a shepherd laid down his life for the flock. That verb laid down, action, because Christ did that. He says, Christ takes off his cloak, lays it down so he can wash his disciples' feet to serve them. Action. And what this gets at is that for Christ, that love that he has for the world, for people, isn't something that stays in the land of la-la land. It's not just knowledge. Christ didn't come on earth and say, I believe what it means to be a Messiah is true. He lived it out. The Messiah heals. Christ heals. The Messiah is here to free the prisoners. Christ died for the atonement. The Messiah is here to feed. Christ fed. Christ embodied what it meant to be the Messiah. And it's a verb. Love is a verb. And John's not letting us say we believe all the right things about Jesus, but they've never produced actions that impact our world. He never lets us get away with that. Like I said, that's the most convicting part for me. Because it informs those next two verses when he says this, this part about we can't claim to have the love of God and not care for the poor. Or when he says, brothers, love not with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And what he is getting at is this isn't just a doctrinal statement. It is a transformed heart that is in responding to Christ. And that transformed heart has a high quality of love. And from it, loving Christ-like actions flow. And I want to sit with these three major points. And I want to put two challenges out there today. And before I do, I want to make sure you all understand that this is not something that hasn't convicted me all week and honestly for years to this point. Both of these challenges are things that hit home to me. And I'm going to talk about why. The first challenge is simply this. 
Who am I failing to love with the love of Christ today in my life right now? Is it a group? Is it a person? Is it an institution? Where, where, which person, which group of people am I failing to love with that full love of Christ? And I'm just going to be vulnerable, and this is a very vulnerable topic for me. But I uh, got my degree in political science at undergrad, and I'm also a very prideful human being. It's one of my deepest sins. And that creates very strong political opinions, which I'm sure I'm the only one who has those. Good. And what I found out the last two years is that when I would engage people who I saw as in opposition to me, people who I eventually could label enemies, the words and the attitude, especially online, but also in life, that I approached them with and I engaged them with did not in any way reflect the love of Christ. In fact, when you looked at the resentment and the anger and the hate sometimes that was behind how I, tr- I, I felt towards those people, you saw a whole lot of the heart of Cain. And the convicting part about this is when I recognized that, I realized that I was on the outside looking in of the reconciling part of that equation. I had put myself fundamentally in a space in which reconciliation was not possible for Mike Overstreet. And I was on the outside looking in on what God was doing in the world. I want to be very clear. This is not saying we can't have debate. It's not saying we can't disagree. We need to sharpen one another. It is saying that how I do that means a lot more to God than I usually want to give it credit. Because how I did it was what put me in a state which I saw myself as separate and better than other people. The second challenge is probably even more hard for me to say in front of people, but it's where am I failing to act out the faith I profess? And when I was younger, um, I always cared about the poor. When I was a punk, cared about the poor, loved that part of the message. When I became a Christian, I popped open the Bible, and I was like, Jesus does too. I don't have to change. Wonderful. I was all on board. I said, finally, this is the thing I can get on board with. About six months to a year into my faith, I had a conversation with a friend that wrecked my world. Because what it fundamentally exposed was if you took my words and my beliefs out of the equation and you looked from the outside in, you could not tell that at all with how I lived my life and how I did my my actions. I wasn't giving to a church or a charity. I wasn't serving in a church or outside in the world. I wasn't even in in a group. I couldn't even pour into people emotionally, let alone financially. And the hard part was that both of these things were times in my life that brought to mind that punk stuff. You see, I didn't just bring it up because it's funny. It is funny. Everyone likes to see Mike wear a silly vest, right? The funnier part is that as I moved off from that vest, I began using those safety pins for other things in my life. Because when I got that balance of belief and action wrong... That became something that had good tribe. It was a good tribe. It was good music. It was good fun. But it had nothing to do with the kind of person that I was. And the same thing has happened to me in my Christian life. And will sure happen again in the future. Do not get me wrong. There will be times again where I will get this whole thing wrong. And it's a reminder that when I do, it's not about this shame thing, but it's about the fact that I missed out on the good stuff of the kingdom. When I was a Christian and I got this wrong, I wasn't healed. I wasn't restored. 
I wasn't transformed. I wasn't even reconciled to people. I wasn't experiencing any of the growth and the goodness that Christ offers us. And I only started to get it right when I started doing the things that let me live the life. I joined a group, and I got a mentor, and I began practicing what love looks like, especially with people in my group who I disagree with or sometimes who hurt me. I found out what it means to forgive because I practiced forgiveness in a group of people that were able to talk about what that meant. And the quality of my love, bloop, 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 got a little higher. I began serving. I went to Guatemala in that second year. I started doing junior high. I started doing service in the church and service outside. And what I began to find is that when you swing a hammer and you're terrible at it, as you build a wheelchair ramp, or you have your hands in the mud and you'd rather be inside, you start to get a little humbled when you see that family who needed that wheelchair ramp come out and thank you. And you see the difference you made in their lives and the fact that you were just part of that healing, that saving, that reconciling, that redeeming taking place in our world. And you go, maybe that self-centeredness that made me not want to do this, maybe it's got me on the outside looking in. And maybe I'm missing out on my own growth that Christ is offering. And I want to make sure this last point is clear. Because I'm going to end with this last point and there's going to be a story that goes with it. This is not about shaming. We get these verses wrong as a church when we use them to shame people. When we use them to shame ourselves. It's not a guilt trip. It is not telling you that you are a bad person. It's also not saying that if you've gotten this wrong in the past really badly, or that you make mistakes along the road, that you can't get back in on what God's doing in the world. Because if you look at my life, I have hurt people badly. I have ruined relationships. And I have put myself in a hole. And I like to think that I am not outside looking in on what God's doing in the world. No, what this is fundamentally a reminder of is two big things. One, the Christian life requires self-honesty and self-reflection. Non-judgment, but self-reflection. When I start getting this out of lack, I need to, with honesty, look at my life and say, I want to be better. I want to live out this thing I believe. And I need to start taking steps to do it. And once again, it's not about judgment. It's about the fact that tomorrow, I want to be better than I was today. And that is a beautiful thought. That's a godly thought. And the second one, I think, is even more important. This is about the potential of the kingdom of God in a human's life. We read these verses and we miss out that what John is challenging us to do is to realize that even though I am a broken and battered and depressed and often angry person, that when I get this love thing right and I get the heart of love that actions flow from, even all that being true, I can still be a part of making the world more like God. And if that's not good news, I don't know what is. Because I need to be reminded that inside me, inside all of us, is the potential to be part of the healing and the reconciling and the redeeming of our world. And if you guys don't see any in the world, anything in the world today that could use some more reconciliation or some more healing or some more redemption, well, then maybe, I don't know, I can't help you with that. <laughs> but that's, that's something I want to be a part of. And it's a reminder that I can be. And there's a story that um, I'm going to close with that hits a home run in terms of, I think, showing us what this looks like when we get it right. Uh, there's going to be a person on the screen. Who knows who this is? No one. Man, the nine was so more and more woke than y'all. I'm just kidding. 
This is Desmond Tutu. Desmond Tutu is an Anglican priest and bishop um, who served in the Anglican church in South Africa during apartheid. Apartheid was the regime's effort at the time for years to basically have systematic segregation throughout the entire society. Politically, black South Africans couldn't participate. Economically, they cannot hold positions of power. And I mean, this was built into the laws. And Desmond Tutu and a more popular person you may know of, Nelson Mandela, went about confronting this institution of evil and ultimately destroying it, something that Desmond Tutu eventually won the Nobel Peace Prize for. And one day, for a couple months, maybe I think it might have been a year, he had been holding desegregated services at his church, which was not allowed politically at all in South Africa. And he had been told over and over again to stop. We don't do that here. And Desmond Tutu being, I'm not going to say that word, the awesome dude that he is, didn't care. He just kept doing it. And one day, armed militia and armed police came in and lined the wall of his cathedral, basically threatening him and saying, you know what will happen if you don't stop. They found out later that some of them had the intent to kill him, if possible. And suddenly, Desmond Tutu had a choice. Participation, opposition. Respond with hate, fight fire with fire. Or, and you guys want to know what he did? It's hilarious. He walked up to the microphone, and he giggled. <laughs> he laughed in their face. And this phrase has stuck with me to this day. I see you have come to join the winning side. Come, we have seats for you. When faced with evil, he had the Christ-like love to invite them into worship. To change the game by basically saying, I see that you're on the opposition side, but come in. We have seats for you. And some of them were stunned, some left. Some put down their guns and joined the worship and it became just one more sign of the impotence of that institution that eventually cracked and fell apart. And it's not because Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu tripped into being part of reconciliation. They had lived the life and developed the heart that when the kingdom came a-knocking and they had a chance to be a part of that healing in the world, they could say yes. And when they did, God showed us what the potential of the kingdom in a person can look like when they get this love thing right. And that should be good news because he's not a superhero. He's a human being, like every single person in this room. And when we do this right, we have the potential to heal, redeem, and reconcile a broken world.